0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 52 of SoftSpot. My name is Chelsea Hamshin. I am your host and the vice president of marketing and events at the Global Soft Foundation. I apologize for the long hiatus. I know it's been a while since episode 51. But as you may have heard, we had our first in-person event last month. That's right. We had our first symposium since November 2019 in Tampa, the GlobalSoft Symposium U.S. When our small team puts on a symposium, it's a ton of work, and that was amplified even more this year with COVID precautions and brushing off the cobwebs from the long year and a half with minimal in-person interaction. But it went really well. We brought together over 270 members of our community from over 20 nations, had 20-plus tabletop exhibitors, plenty of outdoor networking in some wonderful Tampa weather, and a full day of hybrid speaker sessions featuring leaders from across the soft community presenting both virtually and in person. Speaking of events, we have another in-person opportunity coming up, our seventh anniversary reception. It's hard to believe we're seven years old, but here we are. We usually hold this reception on the Monday of Sophic week, and even though Sophic is only happening virtually this year, we decided that we don't want to break tradition two years in a row. So, we will be having our celebration in person in Tampa on Monday, May 17th, at Tampa's popular Armature Works venue. We've got sponsorships and free expo space for partners, plus plenty of food, drink, and networking activities. So visit gsoft.org to learn more and get registered.
1: And then if we want to break it down. The
0: Global Soft Foundation. My immediate reaction was, this is awesome. special
2: Special operations community. You have our support. Let's move.
0: Welcome to Soft Spot. One thing that we've been doing consistently throughout the pandemic is finding ways to share key stories from special operations history. One way we do that is through Soft Stories Live, which stream live to our YouTube page once a month. And then if you miss it, we keep it up there so you can still watch it, just not so live. But they're really interesting stories that we want to capture. So we did and we do. In this episode, I'm going to share excerpts from two of those stories, and then if you want to watch the whole thing, I have linked to our YouTube page in the episode bio. The first one features men who took part in Operation Just Cause in Panama in 1989 and 1990. The United States invaded Panama in an attempt to overthrow military dictator Manuel Noriega, who had been indicted in the U.S. on drug trafficking charges and was accused of suppressing democracy in Panama and endangering U.S. nationals. Noriega's Panamanian Defense Forces, or PDF as you'll hear them called, were defeated, forcing the dictator to seek asylum in Panama City, where he eventually surrendered on January 3rd, 1990. The moderator that you'll hear is Master Sergeant Retired Mark Stevens, with Speaker CW5 Retired Randy Jones, Sergeant Major Retired Clifford J. Bailey, and Sergeant Major Retired James Jim Moy.
3: To get into the meat of this whole thing, and I want to go through it with each one of you, but what were your, what were the the different missions you were given and what were some of the major challenges you had and, and
4: like, you know, what was your problem solving or how did you solve them? Jay. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, the first thing for us was getting over to Allbrook Airfield from Battery Pratt uh, for a sermon. Uh, we moved up first thing in the morning and once we got to Allbrook, we left linked up with our sister unit, C-37, which happened to be the SIF that, you know, was already stationed out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So they was already pretty much given all their missions, and we just fell in on it because they started running short of personnel, you know, between the radio towers, the TV towers, and uh, the Pecora Bridge. So I was attached to one of the teams that was going to one of the radio towers slash TV stations to cut off the communication links between uh, Noriega and some of his outstations and um, their PDF elements. So um, pretty much, uh, we just started loading out our gear, um, prepping all the helos, and you know, getting our target sets ready. Um, you know, leading right into the mission. Um, and Rick probably attest to this: is that HR is supposed to be around one o'clock in the morning, something around there, but. Uh, Pretty much all hell broke loose a little bit earlier than that. So rounds started coming through the, the all hangar and um, our helo was only able to get one fast rope onto it. So it was on the other side of the door, left side of the door. Um, they just told us to launch and get out of there and just go straight to our targets. So we loaded the helos with the gear we could grab and all of our uh, all our equipment and anti-tank weapons, everything we needed to to, to conduct the mission. Um, The funny part of this is, like I am saying, you know, fast forward just a little bit. uh, We get to the target, and it is dark as I don't know what. And, you know, we post them in fast And Of course, I'm on the door that doesn't have a fast rope, right? So we're pulling up, we're pulling into the field over there by the radio tower, like everything was planned. And uh, the other team goes out. You know rope goes out they start sliding down the rope we look over the other side and it just looks like the kuna remember the kuna grass is like four five feet tall maybe at the most six feet tall and they said oh we can jump from here be a soft landing well the first guy goes out on my side and he just disappears i don't see him anywhere i'm like looking back at the second guy it's like well we gotta go so i jump out and i must have felt like 10 to 15 feet and it ends up being the, um, the baby bamboo trees. So it ended up breaking all of our falls. But in the meantime, it was like a yard sale because the anti-take weapon I had on my back, it got ripped off of me. My helmet got ripped off of me. My sling was snatched off my weapon but I was holding on to so tight, you know, landing on the ground. And it was just like a Three Stooges movie. You know, going into the target at first, you know, because people fall on top of each other coming out because of the way the ropes are landing and everything. But uh, we, uh, we moved the breach to the radio tower. And I haven't got to mention, we did have a tech with us um, because they were supposed to, once we breached, they were going to go in, remove tubes and everything to shut down the towers. So we moved the breach. We get up there and like a real good engineer, I guess they must use a P for plenty on the door charge. And once that door charge went off, it just went maybe 20 to 30 feet through this, uh, through this facility. Um, so there was pretty much no need for the tech guy to come up inside there, but he comes up and just gives a thumb up because the door done all the damage that it need to do. So we didn't have to remove any tubes out of it. So um, pretty much mission accomplished for that night, radio towers down. And uh, we just sat up there uh, the rest of the night until we got picked up in the morning time.
5: How about you, Jim? Yes, uh, sorry, trying to find the mute button. Um, Yeah, my team, I was just very fortunate to be on a team that was uh, chosen as part of a 23-man force going in to rescue Kurt Mewes. He was an American citizen uh, held captive by Noriega, it's a long story, he wrote all about it in his book, Six Minutes to Freedom, good read. But uh, he was a true American patriot that got caught up in the political turmoil. We, uh, this mission was a top priority, not just because of the, his status, but he w- had been assigned a prison guard to specifically to torment and execute him if the Americans tried any, to pull anything. And um, so if the invasion kicked off, it had to be in the opening shots. But it was actually also a stand standalone mission for months prior to that, uh, because Noriega was using him as political leverage. If you if you keep pushing me, I'm going to put this guy on trial, uh, prosecute him as a spy, and execute him. So uh, to take that leverage away, he had to he had to come out of the prison one way or the other. The prison was right across the street uh, from the Commandancia, the Noriega's headquarters, military headquarters. So it was a, a challenge. If it didn't go with the invasion, it would have been a a fight. My actual job uh, on the mission was um, part of the roof security team. Uh, Each of us had a um, designated guard tower to uh, control and then eliminate any hostile uh, actions in our sector as they presented themselves. A group of us had had to also prep to do a follow-on mission to clear the whole prison, if Muse wasn't found in a cell, we were going to, uh, to go down and clear. And in those days, you didn't clear with saws and 203s and stuff. So we had to develop, uh, uh gun, gun light mounts for the saw, the, the 203s, um, the, uh, aim point mounts for a saw, um, in that, uh, The gun lights, remember, were big C-cell batteries. They they weren't the little LEDs, so that was uh, somewhat of a challenge. But uh, I would have to say the major challenge we had for this mission was the lift restriction of the Little Birds. Uh, We had to have, the plan was take 23 in and bring 24 out. And maybe Randy can expound on that more, but uh, we didn't have the five-blade Little Birds uh, yet and with their performance. we had to weigh in uh every single rehearsal and there's a guy standing there with a clipboard and you if you couldn't add an extra magazine uh an extra frag or a candy bar they they had it written down and uh, it was that tight and it and it became a factor during the mission itself but um one night in fact uh we were rehearsing on the the elementary school on the base at pretty much uh, the size of the prison, and a little bird took a tail strike because of lift, uh, which was a CI nightmare because the kids are coming to school in a few hours. Um, But the next day was the amazing part, as I sat in the hangar, and the pilots and mechanics are pulling out instruments. Uh, We got two of these, we don't need that. Uh, Who needs a cannibal bearing? Who wants a fire extinguisher in a combat zone? but they're trying to give us every advantage they could. Uh, if we were gonna hang it out there, they were too. And that's, you know, 160th way. Um, so in fact, I think, I know two of the birds only had one pilot on it on the rehearsals. I can't remember if uh, if the actual mission went with one, when someone had one pilot, maybe Randy remembers. But uh, that was the big challenge was just the wait. After that, it was just uh, looking for Elvis missions as Intel developed about where Noriega was is a bunch of follow-on. Got
3: it. How about you, Randy? Randy Jones? You just mentioned something that uh, made me remember. We had uh, weight limitations with the AH-6, you know, the light, light light attack aircraft as well. And it, we've since modified those aircraft. They got better engines. me. and I got six blades on them instead of five, and I uh, got a four-bladed tail rotor and they've increased the gross weight. When we first started flying, it was 2,280 pounds, and now it's well over 4,000 pounds, so, uh, but we throw more stuff in there. We, we double the weapons capability with wing stores and stuff, but that was one of the innovative things. But what was happened on this particular mission, we, three of our targets were within, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of Howard Air Force Base, three of the four close air targets. My target, which was Rio Hato, was 70 miles away, and there were no friendly forces down there. It was all bad guys. It was a mech infantry unit and, uh, and of course, whatever airfield security forces they had. And the problem with that is is when you're only carrying seven rockets and uh, one minigun with 4,000 rounds of bullets, you try to be innovative. And I talked the regiment commander who happened to be there with us into letting us take the seven-shot pod off and put a 19-shot rocket pod on a little bird. If you don't think something looks funny, and particularly when you're hovering and the thing's leaning over like this because you got so much weight on the outside, but we, we carried 19-shot pods, and we also uh, I came up with the concept we need to use triple redundancy when it came to whether it was munitions or fuel or whatever it was. When you're that far away from friendly forces, I can't afford to stop the close air support for the ground guy to fly back for, back and back down there for an hour and 10 or 15 minutes just to refuel or rearm so I had an m860 loaded up with a team with rockets and fuel and stuff that they could pump to us and we secured a site for them on the ground on the assault and I also had an airborne drop which had one of the 160s uh, group of folks on there at that so we solved our problem as far as being able to at least have some backup for rearm and refuel with the assault in real hot you know this was a this was a pretty pivotal event during that time so what what impressed what impressed or inspired you um you know during these events what made you laugh what pissed you off just kind of you know give everybody kind of a sense
4: of of that perspective uh you know when all this was going on jay i'll start with you I would say what impressed me the most is not having work with another team or a unit Um, because, you know, you know, you have your your usual team or the 712, you know, you might work with just teams within your company, but not with a company outside of that. So I would say what impressed me the most was, of course, always the professionalism they treated me with with the outsider coming into their team and how they brought me in and how fast we came to understand one another. And overall, um, how, we you know, we conducted a mission without any rehearsals. If you think about it, this happened so fast from our c- perspective that we were able to carry out, I don't know how many missions there, there were that night, at least eight or nine missions going on at the same time across the board. And we didn't have the technology that we have today where you can see everything you know, in the job on the TV screen or every, anything like that, it was all time-driven, yeah. or, you know, you had your codes, whatever it is, then you knew people were place to do what you need to do. So I think that, you know, looking back, that is really impressive how we pull that off so fast without with the technology that we had back then. And pretty much what, I would say, funny part, you know, of course, besides the story falling out of a helicopter with, you know, everything getting pulled off of you and the breach was uh like i told you before you know our sock south commander colonel jacoblin great guy he kind of reminds me of um our old unit commander uh, tall lanky guy uh, but uh i guess he wanted to troop the lines one day uh over on all broken. that was the morning of the 19th or day of the 19th if you will and uh i think like rick had mentioned something that happened someplace else on the other side of the airfield, so he decides to jump into this APC, you know, commander vehicle with the hatch on it and everything, so he's driving across the field over there, and you can see this thing just dip, and I guess they forgot to tell him you need to latch that latch back there. That thing came forward, knocked him in the back of the head. I know he must have seen stars for like three weeks because that hatch hit him in the back of the head, but, um, yeah, that, that was one, one of those funny stories. That's just like you know, you're looking across. It's like, did that did that really happen? You know, really, you know. So, and you'll never live it down either. Never live it down. But uh, great guy, and as far as being pissed off, I mean, looking back, I mean, it it was a crazy time, but it was a good time. And I think it brought a lot of people together, and you know, we've, we've been friends ever since. And uh, just a, a great bunch of guys during a, a crazy, fast time. That's awesome, man! Did you guys give him a new call sign? Nah, I wasn't gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just still a staff sergeant. I had a career to look after.
3: <laughs> oh, that is awesome!
2: That would have been amazing to see. Um, hey, Jim, what do you got, brother?
5: Got nothing like that. Oh, I guess uh, what made me laugh—not at the time it happened—but uh, we landed on the prison roof, and I ran to my position. And uh, the whole prison's lit up with Christmas lights. I mean, who does that? Who puts Christmas lights on a prison? All I could think of was the movie uh, John Belushi in 1941, saying, "We got to put out these Christmas lights, shooting up the town." <laughs> um, the other, uh, you can see them along the forward edge of that picture. There, there's it's hard to see the sparkles in the bottom corner are, is my 203 round going off, but the, all those other lights are the Christmas lights. They uh, they went out somewhere between the green and red tracers they went out uh, as well but um the the other funny thing that wasn't funny at the time was uh the, cor- the corner where i was at had a little bitty six inch wall for me to take cover behind whereas everybody else had this big four foot wall okay so maybe it wasn't six inches i don't know you're gonna show the picture but you can see it does drop down and uh i, I remember looking over at chris with the mag 58 and he's he's hit behind that real big square thing with all that cover and and I just was like, man, <laughs> who gave me this spot? But uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it was in the intel. You can see it there, but uh, it, it just didn't dawn on me. The, um, the thing that impressed me the most about this was, uh, was the intel. The, uh, the, the duration of the captivity uh, made it such that people were allowed to visit uh, Kurt and they were obviously trained, some were trained assets for collecting. They came out with highly detailed information. Uh, The bottom of the screen there, you see uh, the mock-up of the prison that was made in uh, hurlberg. It only has the two stories because of, um, that's all we had to fight down to to get to him. If we had to go to the bottom floor, the third one, uh, it it was just broom clearing as usual. So, Um, but not that I had a lot of experience at the time, but. Say compared to the the mission, uh, hostage missions in uh, Beirut that we'd also been training for during this time, um, this was a cakewalk. I mean, we knew uh, what side of the door the hinges were on. You know, you name it, uh, and often with pictures to go along with it. So the uh, the intel was was phenomenal, and um, they, uh, uh, we also had desensitizing flights uh, on the that we could fly with the pilots. They had to be done in the daytime in Blackhawks, but it allowed us to see the train, uh, the, terrain, the, the uh, streets, the numerous cemeteries with all the cover and concealment they offered around the building. And, um, and it desensitized the, the guards to a helicopter flying over the building low and slow and you know, nothing happening. So it, it uh, seemed to work, but it was a, a big help to us. That's awesome. Hey, Randy, same thing to you.
3: Yes, sir. <clears throat> of course, there was a couple of things that made me kind of angry. One, the main thing that made me angry before we lost, just before H-Hour, somebody mentioned it on an unsecure radio coming over. I won't point fingers at who it was. And we got an order to up H-Hour by 30 minutes. As I say, all the rest of my teams only had five or ten minute flights from Howard to get to their targets. I had it. 70-mile flight over water, uh, and we were able to, I mean, but, I mean we were cranking. We were, we were burning some hot turbines that night going down. We managed to make up about 15 minutes on the route down, and uh, again, that, that one radio call really compromised my end of it as far as I was concerned because they knew we were coming at that point because stuff was already going on back in Panama City. And uh, and we took a lot of fire going in. I mean, a heavy ZSU fire going in, but thankfully the H64 that accomplished um, a company that got tagged on at the last minute, um, and they didn't get a very good S2 brief, which I, you know, is another one of my points of anger, that the S2 had information that I didn't get either about this target site. It wasn't until after we returned that I found out about it. So my comment the hot wash was, that, he was exact, 100% successful in keeping enemy information out of the hands of friendlies. So, Anyway, I'd like to digress to a little bit of humor here, though. Uh, those of you that were there at the commandancy in the prison know that we had an aircraft that was shot down over there. Yeah, I think CW-3 Fred Horsley was a prior SF guy who went to flight school. And George Conkle, who was a captain who was with him. But after their crash, they got out and during their ENE, they captured one of the PDF soldiers. And so they're trying to get out of the middle of all this AC-135 and everything else that's going on out there and running down the streets. And they finally went to a place where there was an APC and the guy on the APC he's sitting up there with a the 50 cal. They tell him to halt and they are gonna kill him if they didn't stop him. That was Kunkel, pretty sharp guy, West Point graduate. We had a running password. It was Bulldog, was the running password. And he started saying, Bulldog, Bulldog, Bulldog. And the guy's hauled through, haw, don't move any further. We're gonna we'll shoot, you know, and he fired a warning shot. And Conkel goes, God damn it, Bulldog, don't you understand the running password? <laughs> anyway, that's when they said started waving them on in. They came in, brought their prisoner with them. It was kind of funny.
0: Okay, that's all you get on that one. Like I said, if you'd like to hear the rest of the story, find the Global Soft Foundation channel on YouTube or check out the link in this episode's description. These guys also provided a lot of photos, so if you want some more visuals to go along with what they were talking about, there's a link provided for that as well. Now I have a quick corporate partner highlight for our small business partner, Wicker. More than ever, secure collaboration is crucial for government agencies. With the secure collaboration platform from Wicker, agencies can communicate and collaborate safely. Wicker has an understanding of the threats the federal workforce is faced with, and is the communication Swiss Army knife your agency deserves. Video calls, text messages, collaboration rooms, all in one hyper secure platform. The only U.S. based company that meets the NSA's recommendations for choosing a secure collaboration platform. Get more information today at wicker.com. That's w-i-c-k-r.com. Okay, let's dive into our second Soft Story Live excerpt. We'll discuss one of the most famous missions of Operation Desert Storm, the combat search and rescue performed by the 20th Special Operations Squadron on January 21st, 1991. It was a mission to recover Lieutenant Devin Jones and Lieutenant Lawrence Slade. They were shot down in their aircraft, call sign Slate 46, by an Iraqi surface-to-air missile in the first hours of the morning of the fourth day of war. The speakers for this event were Lieutenant General Retired Tom Trask, Master Sergeant Retired Greg Van Heining, and Master Sergeant Retired Craig Dock, with moderator, Chief Master Sergeant Retired Randy Anderson. Let's hear what they have to say.
1: This was a daylight rescue, uh, something that is not in our wheelhouse. We don't like daylight rescues because we learned from Southeast Asia. We're extremely vulnerable in daytime rescues, uh, particularly in a hostile environment. Uh, Unlike the other environments, we were in a different thing. We were opposing a major uh, military force for the first time in Southeast Asia. Panama, you really couldn't count. Uh, uh, This was... Uh, a, a sophisticated air defense system so now we're doing this daytime as opposed to a nighttime what type of preparation uh did you do to solve for this for example how did you do the c2 what was the rescue package configuration the crews you know how how did you prepare I, I how did you work that greg i'll start with you
6: well you know it's 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 a matter of of uh it it, it starts at the ground level right there with your pre-flight you go out there and you make sure that that aircraft is configured with every piece of equipment that you could possibly you know require for for any mission that you're called on and then then it's just a matter of uh you know uh bringing up your your training uh and and that was the whole focus you know within the unit was you train exactly the way you're going to go fight and there was there was Never an issue with this or that. We were easily brought back on the track by any obstacles we might have run to. You know, it's, it's, it's all about completing the mission and coming up with, with, a, uh, with a viable answer to any roadblocks that you hit and moving on with it. And, and that's essentially uh, the big thing there. It, it boils down a lot to, to adding, and that's mission accomplishment.
1: No, Okay. Well, I, I, and I appreciate it. Tom, I, I, I'd like to go to you on this. Why did we use 50 cows? Why not many guns? Why, why did we not do personal? What was the issue? Why, why the configuration we had, how did we go about uh, authenticating survivors? You know, some of you had uh, had prior rescue experience, but in the most part, you know, rescued the traditional classic as we knew it, we didn't really practice that. Uh, but 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 there was a lot of carryover experience. Uh, would you like to discuss that with me, Tom? You bet. Yeah, I, I can talk about that. We talked a
7: lot
2: about configuration and and uh, uh, took a lot of advice from uh, uh, the guys that had a lot of experience. And we had, you know, we saw Vietnam guys that had that were in the leadership positions there and some of the senior positions. We talked a lot about uh, how the business was done in Vietnam. You know, in Vietnam they didn't use 50 cals on their 53s because the environment was completely different. A minigun was much more appropriate in Vietnam where you're going to have short range, you're in a tree line, you've got that to deal with. But we knew we were going to be operating particularly in daytime where you could see for 30 miles and everybody could see you for 30 miles and you needed a defensive weapon that could reach out with the range of 50 cal, uh, you know, to allow you to kind of break away from any kind of threat situation. Typically our weapons, with 350 cals mounted on the 53 are mostly designed to help you break contact uh, in a situation so you can get away. So the the 50 cal was the obvious choice. We didn't normally fly 350s back at home, but that was what made sense in the desert there. And it was really the first time going into the Gulf War that we thought about it from that perspective. A lot of the other things that we had were, were just carryovers from Vietnam, like authentication procedures. It was the stuff that the guys had been taught in SEER school Uh, for years. Now, there was some new things that were happening. If uh, you get into the details, the PRC 112 was the brand new survival radio that you could actually home on, but there were very few of them in theater. In our mission, it turned out that the front seater had the 112 or had the uh, old radio, the PRC 90. The back seater had the 112, which didn't work, which was a brand new radio. And we were just getting used to it. So we thought we'd be able to home in on his PRC 112, but that radio never came up. And we went back to old Vietnam style, homing in on the prc ninety that the uh, the front seater carried that allowed us to to pick him up. So uh, from that perspective, it was really
1: a lot of the experience
2: and lessons learned from Vietnam.
1: Well, I and 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 I can totally appreciate that, uh, General Trask. You know, Craig. Uh, you know, let's talk about the navigation. Obviously, you can't do the classic non combat search and rescue. You can't go out and do creeping lines uh, you know, how, you know, attracting a lot of attention because they could see you from 20 miles away. It's uh, pretty flat <laughs> where you guys were operating. How did, how did you overcome that? Did you fly at a certain altitude? Uh, did, uh, you know, tell me, tell me, tell me what your tactics were for
7: Craig. Okay. Yeah. For Craig. So, um, uh... You know, uh, back then I was a tail gunner. So I was kind of, uh, you know, just trying to take a lot of that in as uh, the mission unfolded. Now, uh, keep in mind, uh, just as the general said, we had a lot of uh, Vietnam era TTPs uh, to employ in that situation. But as it turned out, you know, uh, zero visibility on the ramp at the time we were going to spin the aircraft up and launch uh, presented a uh, a different challenge. Um, if uh, the guys remember, um, we had a compressor stall on run up. And when that engine popped, Greg was running that engine up and it popped, you heard a loud bang. And he assumed one of us cut loose 50 cal round uh, in the back uh, on the ramp as we were arming up, just kind of getting things ready to go uh, during, during the spin up. So, um, you know, stranger things would unfold, but um, you know, we, we got the aircraft run up and initially to take off in zero visibility and, and you know, immediately transition into a train following a profile. You know, I felt pretty comfortable with that initially because I'm like, well, yeah, I can't see anybody, but they can't see us. So I felt pretty good about being uh, cloaked uh, in that weather until we uh, broke out uh, pretty much right at the border. Um, so then things got interesting, you know, we, we kind of dropped down to a, a, lower altitude, um, typically, uh, day tack, uh, just to get some visibility and things. We might be around hundred feet or 80 feet, but, uh, we weren't far, uh, north of the border when, uh, the radio chatter spooled up and we were told that, uh, a MIG was inbound, uh, had us locked up and, uh, we we're probably going to get shot at. So at that point it got pretty exciting. Um, A quick discussion that I recall up front uh, between um, Tom and Mike uh, were, well, you know, if we snap south towards the border, how close to the border are we going to get before he catches up to us? You know, whatever he was doing, 500 knots or something, it's like, well, not very far. So the decision was just made to get lower at that point and keep trucking. So we were down around, I don't know, 15, 20 feet uh, for the rest of the day. Uh, we got pretty comfortable at being that low, um, and uh, that's just one of the things that happens in real time when you just got to make an adjustment and, and make it work. But funny you should say that we, we should not have been out there uh, doing traditional you know SAR uh, patterns like a creeping line or expanding square. But as I recall, um, you know initially we didn't have a good fix on the survivor um, overhead. Uh, capabilities, air breathers. We could hear AWACS, uh, maybe some other fighters were, were further up in the cap, um, trying to make contact. But we were given vectors a couple of times to, to hit a different coordinate and literally search that area. So so we did start kind of sweeping across the desert and poking around and, uh, and uh, you know, every now and then we, we'd see something interesting. I think we saw an ejection seat or something out there. We made a landing, poked around at it. Uh so um things just kind of evolved. You know, we had to roll with it, you know, every 10, 15 minutes, it was a different thing happening that we made decisions and we adjusted our our tactics accordingly.
2: Hey, Randy, if I can jump in and just add to that, because you talk about the daytime element. This was the first day that we'd even sat alert in daytime. For the first days of the war, we weren't even allowed to sit alert, and there was no consideration of going in daytime because of the the IADs were heavy enough that we, everything had been planned to go only at night. We had briefed all of the tactical crews that if they got shot down, they would have to make it till darkness. And then the special operations crews would come and get them. And so this was the first time when the IADs had been degraded just enough that they would at least consider sending us in the, in daytime. And so it was the first, first mission flown in daytime by any of us going in, in as part of the Gulf War.
1: Well, I, I and and thank you for that, uh, General Trask. I appreciate that. Now, your crew configuration—obviously, you got two pilots, two engineers, uh, and 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 two gunners on, uh, for the audience uh, on an MH-53 payload. Uh, but they, you also have a rescue element on there. Uh, and in more modern times, we use SF uh, Special Forces Green Beret uh, ODA types, or we use SEALs. Uh, but in this case, we went with the traditional. Uh, uh, more CSAR platform uh, rescue package. Uh, explain who who was the rescue uh, uh, element on, on the aircraft with you, the people that would actually disembark the aircraft and, and go. And I'll start with you, Tom.
2: Yeah, so, you know, as those Air Force CSAR units had shut down, the pararescue community had not condensed. So there were lots of PJs out there that didn't have uh helicopter units to be a, attached to anymore so we, we actually had a fair number of pjs that were deployed there so the the tactic we came up with which uh was to add two pjs as the standard configuration so we had two added to our aircraft our wingman uh mike Kings's aircraft had two so uh, the two guys tom Bedard and ben pennington were the two guys i believe they and you guys correct me if i'm wrong but i think they had come out of Kadena. Uh, they were not part of our squadron. They were just part of the PJ task force that was formed to help us do the CSAR piece, and they weren't integrated into the aircrew like they had been in the rescue days, uh, it, you know, prior to the Gulf War. So they were largely passengers on the airplane during the tactical uh, employment of our mission, and then were there to to do the. Uh, actions on the objective to pull the guy in and then to treat him uh, with the medical pieces. If that was needed on the way back.
1: You know, uh, in, in, in the broadcast, well, I appreciate that general Trask, you know, uh, Greg, uh, it, who, who was the PJ in that, uh, in that, uh, opening film clip? I, I think Chelsea has a picture of that also, uh, that, that you could, uh, you know, who is uh, rescuing the pilot? Who, who, who was that pair
6: yeah, we we had two uh, pararescuemen on board, uh, uh, Tom Bedard and uh, Ben Pennington, and uh, Ben Pennington uh, was the PJ who who edged out the ramp to uh, meet the pilot and bring him back on. And uh, no, um, both yeah. both PJs were 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 great guys and uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, dedicated as all those younger PJs are and uh, it, it's always nice to have them alone because you never know what's going to happen and you're talking about world-class uh, paramedic uh, skills right there at hand you know to help you out if, if you've got somebody that gets wounded on board the aircraft the crew member or anybody else.
1: Awesome uh, now guys uh, now that we did this and and, and Craig I'm going to address it to you first what impressed you or inspired you during the mission? What made you laugh and how did the crew communicate their concerns during the rescue? Because it wasn't, I, I i wanna illustrate this for the audience. It wasn't a quick jump across the border, make the rescue and then come back and the whole thing's done in 20, 30 minutes. Uh, it turned out to drag out quite a while, let's start with you, Greg
7: Yeah. Um you know, it was uh, pretty dynamic, you know, on the way in, again, I, I said earlier, we did not have uh, an initial fix on the survivor. Um, we didn't know exactly where he was. So uh, as we as we drove in uh, initially, uh, you know, um, the A-10s that would have been uh, uh, covering us uh, in that rest court role had weather delayed back at the base where uh, they were launching from. So uh, my perception was that we were actually in there alone single ship uh, to begin with until uh, the MIG cap uh, got busy. Uh, they scrambled some F-15s in our area to chase the MIG out and one F-15 actually dropped down to about, you know, I don't know, about 2000 feet or so and circled around us, you know, waggle the wings there and uh, got a visual on him. And that was the first time I felt like there was actually somebody in the airspace with us that could actually help us out uh beyond that it was command and control you know chatter from the AWACS uh you could hear them talking to fighters or tankers or other assets and so um you know uh we we did a lot of searching around like i, I uh, mentioned before and at some point uh we simply uh hit bingo and we had to return back to our uh staging base to refuel so on our egress uh from the the area um, working our way back towards the border. Um, luckily, um, people were ready to get in there uh, if the situation would allow. We had a tanker hanging out right on the border, was running up and down just in case uh, there, there was uh, potential to, to send them in. Uh, but we were able to get out uh, with our uh, min fuel and make it back to the base and hit the hot refueling pits. Uh, and that's when things began to change. So, so we spent... Uh, a full uh, mission, you know, bag of gas, as we like to call it, uh, in in the area. Uh, we're back out refueling, and that's when uh, the radio chatter picks up where the A-10s had then gone over us and deep down into the uh, battle space, uh, uh, made radio contact with Devin Jones at that point and began to authenticate him. And when I heard uh, chatter from the AWACS talking, about the authentication process over the radio, Um, you know, I got pretty excited. We're refueling, we had a few minutes left in the hot pits. Uh, We had another aircraft that just arrived uh, and uh, cocking their bird for alert. So, um, you know, things were about to change. Uh, We're about to get the opportunity to go back in this time as a two ship formation with some mutual coverage. Uh, It's always good to have your buddies with you. And um, and the A10s were now uh, in in the airspace uh, where they're going to be able to provide some support as well.
0: All right, that's all you get for now. But like I said, if you'd like to hear the entire soft story, you can find it on the Global Soft Foundation YouTube page. Enjoy. Soft Spot is brought to you by the Global Soft Foundation, a 501c3 based in Tampa, Florida. If you liked what you heard, subscribe and give us a five star review. If you're new to us, you can find out more about the foundation at gsoft.org. That's golf sierra october Foxtrot.org.